Hello, and welcome to another engaging episode of Cyber Speaks Live, the InfoSec podcast recorded in front of a live online audience, giving you, the community, a voice that can be heard around the world. We're live Wednesday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And now it's time for your host, Duncan McAllen. Hi, folks. My name is Duncan Macklin. I am InfoSec War on Twitter, and this is another engaging episode of Cyberspeaks Live, where you, as the InfoSec community, get to have a voice that can be heard around the world, engaging in the dialogue with our guest co-host each week. And this week. We have a fabulous industry leader, a highly accomplished individual that I cannot wait to introduce to you. But let me just give you a little bit of backstory about Gary R. Hayslip. So Gary's joining us today with over 25 years of information security and security leadership risk management experience, etc. You know, he's a just got an exceptional record of leading successful teams and implementing information security programs for the organizations he's been affiliated with. He's a highly skilled communicator, a published author, keynote speaker, you name it. Um, some of his previous roles include multiple CISO positions, CIO, Deputy Director of IT and Chief Privacy Officer roles for the United States Navy Active Duty, the United States Navy Federal Government Employee, the City of San Diego, California, and most recently, WebRoot Software prior to their acquisition which is one of the organizations we're going to be talking about in just a bit. He's also has a BS in information systems management from UMUC and an MBA from San Diego State University. So all that being said, ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you, Mr. Gary Hayslip. Gary, thank you for joining the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Excellent. So uh, tell us, where are you at? What's going on today? How are you doing? Uh, we're, you know, uh, several weeks into, uh, you know, being unemployed. I find that I'm just as busy as I, uh, just as busy as I was when I was employed. I mean, uh, besides the occasional podcast, I mean, I'm still writing, I'm still mentoring and helping people. I've got a friend that runs a virtual CISO practice here in San Diego, so I've been helping him oh, actually perfect. consulting and helping a lot of local, you know, CISOs here in the area while I'm doing interviews. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hopeful I'll pretty much, you know, land in a new role within the next month. Oh, we're, I'm highly confident of it. Actually, I was pretty surprised when I saw the LinkedIn update and that you kind of suffered the same fate that I had during the Heat Software Landes merger, which formed the Avanti brand. You know, they kept me on for exactly one year and one week to the day. And in the new organization, I was, my official title was principal security engineer. But, you know, the way my new manager had 
put it, it was more like a fellow in the organization. And that's pretty much exactly what it played out to be. They put me up on the shelf and let me collect dust. The only time that they pulled me down is when the shit hits the fan or there was a major opportunity that they needed my expertise to, to close that deal. And then they'd politely put me back up on the shelf and let me continue to collect dust. And this, you know, went on for a year. And I suspect that the time in, because it wasn't just myself, I lost myself and three quarters of the international team around the security products. And that's one of the things I want to talk about when we get into all this. On that day, we all got that phone call and, you know, we're given our papers. But just like you, I found myself immediately busier <laughs> being unemployed than I was when I was working for that one year or one week for the new company. So, you know, best of luck to you. I know you're going to land in a fantastic organization and a great role that speaks to your strengths and, and business acumen. So I'm really excited to see where that may end up being. Uh, just before we left to get to the office and, and set up for this, I had sent you a tweet and it's something from Ryan Miller, who is known as at some infosec guy on Twitter. So Ryan Miller puts out the question, scenario, you're the CISO and your IT director refuses to join his PC to the domain and uses the network administrator credentials to map network drives to his PC. What do you do? Actually, this, I ran into this when I, I was in the military, you know, and, and when I was working for the federal government, you know, you run into, um, you know, people who kind of, you know, feel they're super secret squirrel special, you know, their own thing. And really it comes down to, okay, is this a hill you want to die on? That's really what it comes down to. I mean, you know, my thing is, I mean, I learned the hard way. Okay, I could go ahead and yell, scream, and throw a fit and fight, but am I going to change anything? Not really, except for getting my resume ready and looking for a new job. Uh, no. <laughs> you know? However, I mean, there's other, there's other things that I can do. Let's it, talk about that, that, though. Let's talk about that, because I, I don't want to interrupt you, but... You're raising a point about getting your resume ready. Now, if I'm not mistaken, when it comes to org charts, a director seems to be a little bit below an officer, right? Chief Information Security Officer, IT Director. So who should be the one fired here? It depends. I mean, I've seen, I've seen security directors called CISOs. You know, I've seen security managers called CISOs. Um, it really depends. I mean, one of the things I would wonder is the CISO, does the CISO report to the IT director? No, he does okay. not. So my thing is, okay, you, you know, who does the CISO report to? You know, I mean, you're going to document the issue that the IT director refuses to do this. You know, and mm -hmm. you could go ahead and, you know, when you submit your report as to, you know, the organization's baseline risks and issues that you're tracking, that could be one of them. You wouldn't call the IT director out, but you would call out that, you know, hey, you've got specific accounts or specific computers that aren't mapped. And here's the risks that are associated with that. 
how do you want me to proceed with this? Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And you're raising all the exact same points that this thread brought to bear, right? Oh, yeah. It, oh, yeah. It, it is talking about that risk analysis, using that kind of verbiage, surfacing up to the CEO level, identifying the risk. Unfortunately, this poor guy is stuck between a rock and a hard place because this particular director of IT is also very good friends with the CEO. He's not going to win this battle. So it's basically deal with the situation as it exists and move on to greener pastures, right? And that's something that good segue into some other things I want to discuss with you as an industry leading CISO. And for those of you that aren't familiar, I kind of missed this in in Gary's bio and I'm gonna back up because I failed to highlight it. Gary's also co-authored the CISO Desk Reference Guide, a practical guide for CISOs, volumes one and two, which are basically considered among the leading books that enable CISOs today to expand their leadership and business expertise. So when I say that Gary is an industry leading CISO, he has the credits to prove it and has literally written the book on the subject matter. So Gary, how long were you the CISO for Weber? Um, A little over two years, you know, two years Uh and a couple months. Okay, so just over two years, and that's actually kind of ironic. Now, I know your situation is different because the departure, correct me if I'm wrong, sir, but the departure was a result of the acquisition, right? Yeah. Okay. That's that's correct. Okay. And, you know, just for those of you that may not be familiar, uh, this year, Carbonite, had acquired Webroot. Uh, I don't have the specifics of the deal. It, it's not important, but it, you know, Gary's departure from the organization, just like mine with Avanti, was a result of that merger activity. Now, Gary's saying that he's he was in that role for two years. I'm sure it would have extended on had the merger not taken place. But in reality. When we look at the lifespan of a CISO in an organization today, the average length of employment with that company is a shocking 13 months. So I know I feel bad for a couple of the job jumps that I've done in my career. They were strategic. There was reasons why I did, but yeah, I've, I've been at a couple places for only a year and a half, two years, you know. And for me, I think it looks bad on my resume for me to have that short of, you know, a term of employment. But why is this happening? What is it about the CISO role that when you're surveying literally hundreds of them around the country, they're coming back in the average According to Sam Curry from Cyber Reason, the average length of employment is only 13 months. Why is this happening, Gary? What what do you think is the major contributing factor for such short tenure? There's been a lot of research on this. 
and it's it's actually interesting it's like if you're a CISO in the fortune 100 your average 10 years between four to six years it's like about 5.2 years and they equate that to be basically that you've got the resources you're paid well you're doing um you know who wouldn't want to be a uh a CISO for one of the fortune 100 you know it's kind of yeah no, you, know, you, know, you know what i'm saying off. outside of that though it drastically drops outside of that it's between roughly 13 to 18 months the reason this is telling and i find it really interesting is the average lifespan or the average tenure for a cio is about 4.3 years the average tenure for like let's say a coo or a cfo is a little over five years the average tenure for a ceo is eight years you know the average tenure for anybody in the c-suite is about five years CISOs are just now joining the C-suite and they're pushing under two years. Originally, when I started seeing this research, I thought, well, they all must be getting fired. And what I found was only about 10% really were getting fired because of breaches. Okay. The rest of it is a wide mixture of things where I found um, didn't have the business acumen you know, of operating at that level. And they're screwing up with resources or they were screwing up with budgets. Um, they weren't able to think strategically and be able to go ahead and take all of their technical knowledge and, and skills and be able to put it in a business format to be able to communicate it to executive leadership or boards. So there's just not that business fit. And about 30% of them um, run afoul of, okay, the whoever their reporting director, you know, the person that they report to, uh, them and that person don't see eye to eye on risk, you know, so there's a lot of that discussion, a lot of that battle dealing with risk. And so what I, what I found was, it was really interesting. So what I found was, you know, the breach piece is there, you know, and it runs about 10%, but a lot of it, you know, I find is what we see with the CISO role. The job itself isn't one particular thing. It tends to be a wide ranging amount of responsibilities and a lot of those responsibilities now are being more and more tied in to being a business executive that uses technology and people and policies to manage enterprise risk. And so honestly, that opens you up for all kinds of crap that can get you fired. You know, and it takes CISOs and CISOs, you know, it takes us a while to get that experience. You know, because cyber itself is a domain that you just don't graduate from school from. You have to get years of experience to be good at it. And then CISOs as security executives, it's the same thing. You got to get multiple roles underneath your belt and you transition from being a tactical CISO to more of a strategic executive and it takes time. You know, and unfortunately some of those CISOs I find uh, run into that buzz off to where they just don't fit. They either outgrow the company that they're with or the company basically outgrows them. I think, I, I honestly think it'll be a while. I think it's going to be another several years where we start seeing those numbers change. And a lot of it, I think, is going to be we CISOs get used to operating in this new environment because our roles have changed. And I'm hoping businesses figure out what the hell they're doing with this role. Right. Gary, do we have any data that supports uh, segmenting some of these success and failures between those that have been hired from outside the organization versus those that have been promoted into that CISO role? You know, 
I haven't seen that. And I honestly think that would be interesting, would be to see, you know, okay, these people that are transitioning, that are leaving early or staying longer, were these people that were, say, security architects or deputy systems, people that were already there, and then they grew up in, you know, into that role, by someone that was just hired, you know, you know, fresh from, you know, another company. You know, I haven't seen anything on that, though I think that would be a very interesting topic to look at. I do as well, and the reason being is, as you were talking and talking about the maturity of the CISOs and their business acumen and being able to handle budgets and teams and this kind of stuff, it almost seems to me that maybe we have CISOs that are coming into these roles with the industry credentials around certifications and those kinds of things, but maybe they're lacking the business acumen that's typically the result of an MBA program or something to that effect that would give them more of that business mindset and not just focusing on the technical elements of the position. So that's the reason I asked the question. Let me yeah. put it to you this way. If there's one thing that you could tell a new or aspiring CISO that they should do to help prepare themselves for that role and to maintain longevity with an organization, what do you think that might be? I just pretty much what you alluded to. I mean, by the time you get to the CISO role, you've got experience already on the technical side. I mean, you've already been in the field for a while. Um, you may not have grown up through like I did. I mean, I came up through, you know, DevOps and into network engineering and network architecture. I was a CIO for a while, and then I got into security and forensics and audit. You know, typically by the time you get to your first CISO role, you've already you got a lot of technical experience behind you. But now you're starting to step into um, that type of leadership role where you need executive training. And this has been a discussion, I've written articles on it where I've talked to businesses that, you know, maybe it would be better on your part to, you know, do some mentoring and provide some executive training to the CISO, vice firing the CISO and rinse and repeat and hiring another one. And I, I really recommend to, you know, people that they decide that the CISO track is where they're going to go. As they are doing all of the technical piece and they're getting the experience and getting the, you know, the uh, the different technical roles underneath their belts to show they have those skill sets, they need to start adding in the business soft skills. You know, whether it's doing an executive cert or whether it's doing an MBA, those things are gonna be required of you, you know, the higher up you get. You're not gonna be able to, to stay fully technical once you become a, a chief information security officer or a chief security officer, you're going to be expected to work with executive teams and work with your peers and other business units who may not be very technical and you have to explain risk to them. You're yeah. going to be expected to be able to evangelize why cybersecurity is important to employees that try to change business culture. And if all you can speak is to the technical side of that, you're not going to get very far. And they are. There's 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 different skill sets, you know. And you're going to learn some of this, you know, through experience. And it helps if you learn some of this, you know, through classes and training and stuff. And it, it does. It gives you different context. I mean, I can tell you, 
I found when I did my MBA a whole different language that people were speaking, you know, at my organization that I really had no clue. I was looking up terms all the time trying to figure out what the hell are these people talking about? And then I, I had more context. And, and then when I started working at Webroot, I reported to the CFO. And so now I got an inside view on how the company was being run and how they were doing due diligence, and how they were doing M&As. And it was really fascinating. And I honestly changed at times how I did security. And I changed at times the approach of my security program and my department because I started understanding that controls and things that we wanted to put in place had impact. And some of this impact may be on revenue teams. And if those teams are bringing in 100 million in revenue and I'm not bringing in revenue, who's going to win? You know, but if I could figure out a way to partner with those teams and enhance their ability to make revenue, then people start seeing the value of some of the changes I wanted to make. You know, and so you gotta figure out, okay, how do I talk to that and not lose them in technical jargon? Honestly, that's where that came for me, was I started having to learn that I needed to be able to speak to both sides, just different worlds, different audiences, and that's what I started doing. Absolutely, thank you for that, and you know, for those, that are listening, Gary and I have a colleague in common, uh, Sam Curry with Cyber Reason, who uh, I just love to death. The guy was one of the guest lecturers for a program I was involved in. And this is probably if you are a new or an aspiring CISO, or if you just want to broaden your own perspective in information security. Last year, I uh, graduated from the inaugural Harvard University Cybersecurity Risk Management Program. And I have to tell you, it was phenomenal. At first, I kind of went into it almost with a cocky mindset, thinking, you know, this is Harvard University. What do those punks know about cyber? And I got took to the tool shed. Let me tell you, it was an impressive program with just a slew of industry leading guest lecturers and me having to pull three and four a.m. cram sessions, putting together a 27 page uh, final paper and everything. It was eye-opening for me and I think of that experience kind of like these fledgling uh, CISOs that are coming out of technical roles or being promoted up into that, hopefully not promoted to a level of incompetency, but uh, a level of capability and having some change. But you're right, there's a different language. And I think beyond recommending a program like the Harvard University one, if you're new to this type of executive leadership or, or role, there's programs and, and courses and organizations out there to help facilitate communication. And that's one of the key things because how you come into that role, how you communicate with your reports, how you communicate with your organization's employees, and most importantly, how you communicate with the C-suite is probably one of those contributing factors of 13 months on the job, right? Communication is so key in what we do in InfoSec. 
and particularly when you're branded with that title of CISO, we hope and pray that you're going to be able to communicate at a level that is going to be accepting of those that are receiving it because that's going to make the difference, all the difference in the world between you being successful and people actually taking heed to what you're saying versus them revolting against you, fighting you at every impasse and ultimately leading to your exit. That's just my perspective, Gary. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but let's go ahead and get into some of the items that you sent over to me because I think this is a pretty good segue forward. Let me just put it out there, guys. Um, we talked about this as a mergers and acquisitions and the impact that it's having on the cybersecurity industry, information security professionals around the globe. And when I started researching just how many we have had over the past three, six months, folks, it's just mind-boggling how many. I had to just stop and say enough is enough. I'm just going to take the top names that folks will recognize because there's so many that are, are taking place. American Express acquires InAuth. Impervia acquires Distill Networks. Uh, Sophos acquires Root Security. ABM Bev, who some of you, and I'm judging by the look on Carol's face right now, may not know, but it's Anheuser-Busch InBev. If I'm not mistaken, the world's largest alcoholic beverage company, right? And they do have CISOs too. They actually just hired a new one, but they acquired an Israeli organization. I think it's Weisberger. Anyhow, now we get to the real names here. Uh, Palo Alto picks up Twistlock for $410 million. The only thing I know about Twistlock is that's what I uh, use to close off my bread. Never heard of these guys, but everything in cyber is hot right now. $410 million to them. Of course, the Carbonite Webroot acquisition, AT&T picking up Alien Vault. Who saw that one coming, right? So at and definitely getting into the cyberspace. eCentire picked up Versive, who's an AI powerhouse. Fortinet got ZoneFox, who does insider threat detection. Nice pickup for them. And then probably one of the most shocking acquisitions in the InfoSec community, BlackBerry picking up Silence. BlackBerry is still in existence. They have pretty much bailed out of the device industry, right? So they, they do have some very specific devices where they're using their operating system, but it's other device manufacturers, but they're branding themselves as a security company today. This acquisition of Silence just puts that you know fist down on the table and exclaims they are cyber so check that out um semantics picked up four different israeli startups in the past two years that's an acquisition every six months can you imagine the challenge of bringing those organizations in the latest was luminate fireeye of course picked up Verodin. these are all 
obviously you know the the software side of the acquisitions but then we get into some of the consulting bits with professional services and cybersecurity services and those kinds of things and we've had a couple really big ones that have hit all this has taken place all these acquisitions they are creating a multitude of issues around infosec and the cybersecurity community around the world but what kinds of challenges are these presenting to our organizations how is a, a acquisition like webroot being acquired by carbonite what impact is that having on our cso's and the decisions that they're having to make the products that they're supporting the the purchases that they've already made that now may have just backfired on them as the result of a merger uh so we're going to talk about those things but one of the points that Gary brought up and I think it's really pertinent here Gary we you mentioned that as a CISO uh you're going to have a new business culture right you're going to have to be able to work with that especially if you're a CISO that's part of an organization that's in a mergers and acquisitions scenario very much like yourself with webroot and carbonite so what do you think we need to do around these acquisitions what do you think business culture dealing with all these M&A activities bringing new folks new security policies all that kind of stuff what do we do with it well I mean I think you know as you were alluding to um industry wide I think honestly this is speeding up more than slowing down I think we're going to see a lot more consolidations. It's interesting to watch because I mean as a CISO and I'm talking with peers of mine back and forth, we're looking at our stacks, we're looking at where we want to consolidate, we're looking at what we can upgrade, how we can integrate things together, how we can share data. And so we're constantly thinking about that in our head and trying to balance our budget, trying to put together a three-year plan to kind of figure out strategically where we're going to go with the resources that we have. And then all of a sudden I hear, well, crap, you know, I was looking at doing um, orchestration and I was thinking about buying Phantom, but now Phantom just got bought by Splunk. And I'm like, okay, well now I'm expecting my Splunk bill to double. Did I have that in my budget? You know, and then I'm like, you know, uh, and then the next thing you know, you're thinking, um, okay, well, I was going to go ahead and I'm using, you know, such and such you know software for my endpoint but now that just got bought by another company and oh well, wait a minute that company that just bought them they're a competitor of my company so crap now i can't use them anymore what do i do next you know and so you start running into these things when you start seeing a lot of acquisitions like this you know part of your job as a CISO is is managing your budget and figuring out you know all the different technologies and services that you have in your stack and what you're using and the changes that are going on. I mean, you know, you, you know, you'll, you'll have, you know, um, software for, you know, CASB. And then that vendor decides to go on a, a buying spree and picks up a couple more companies. And within the next six months, that CASB software you were using, now all of a sudden is doing DLP and is doing multiple other things you weren't even planning for. That could be a good thing because it gives you a chance to consolidate, or it could be a bad thing because it's now it's interfering you know, with other technologies that you have in your stack. And so you have to make changes. That alone is just M&A on the outside, just the industry itself. 
that's constantly causing issues with your program that you're trying to manage. Now, the company that you're in, Webroot, just got bought. You know, and now <laughs> you're dealing with a whole other set of issues because now what starts running through your head as a CISO is you're like, well, hell, I got a whole other security stack that I got to look at and figure out how am I going to merge these? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you're thinking about, okay, this team that I have here that I stood up, you know, I've worked on their certs. I know what training they have, what experience they have. Now I got a whole other team. Are these two teams going to be able to work together? I didn't hire these people. I didn't put them together, so I don't know anything about fit. You know, and now I'm looking at, okay, I've got this ISO certified, PCI certified. You know, we're working on NIST. I've got a three-year strategic plan. All of that comes to a halt because you've got to look at my whole compliance baseline is going to change now because my, my whole network is going to change if we start connecting things. You know, I start... You know, you have to start being in discussions as to, okay, what's going to be in scope now for our ISO 27001? We just got GDPR certified. They're supposed to be GDPR certified. Now I need to get with legal and figure out, okay, our whole reporting structure's changed. What do we do when we have an incident? You know, and it does. I mean, all of these things kind of kind of stack up and you know, it gets really interesting. It almost sounds, Gary, like we need to do threat modeling on these types of scenarios that may come up and bite us in the ass, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely think that should be part of the risk management due diligence that you're doing, you know, so that both organizations understand what they're getting. You know, what you find, though, during M&A, a lot of times is it's like, you know, hey, you know, so-and-so is buying us. Everybody be quiet until this is done. So everything comes to a halt, everything stops, and for the next three, four months, you're just handling tickets, doing the daily maintenance stuff, but you're not doing anything strategic, you know, and you're just waiting for the the purchase to get done, and then you both, on both sides, are unwrapping the present to figure out what you've bought, and then figure out, okay, (laughs) all right, what, what do we need to do now? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You know, earlier you were talking, you know, during that dialogue that the teams may not be a good mesh, right? They may not fit well. It may be massive culture clash, you know, but as the CISO, let's say of the acquired organization, what happens when they're not a fit? That's a good question. You know, I mean, I've found that, you know, you've purchased somebody, you've got that security team, you need them to be able to do the work that they're doing. Because it's going to take time to be able to merge the networks, to be able to merge the security stacks. And so, you know, you know, so in a lot of ways, you want them to just keep running and doing what they're doing. And you pick somebody as a direct report, a team lead, maybe their CISO becomes your deputy until you can get things stable and figure out what you're going to do. On my end, since we were the one that was being acquired, it was more of them understanding what we had. We were actually um, a lot farther along, I think, maturity-wise. And so, I mean, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, educating their CISO as to what we have and what we were doing, what our policies and procedures were. As I was leaving and doing turnover, I think I gave them like 4,300 files and folders and stuff that I had built over the two years that I was there from a strategy standpoint, because I wanted them to have all of the policies, all of the reading documents, have them understand my point of view, what we were building. Of course, you know, it's, it's up to him to decide what changes they want to make, keep, 
shut down, whatever. But the best I could do was make sure that, you know, he had my budget, you know, he had the readout on my teams, their skill sets, their experience. He had the readout on how the stack was put together, the issues that we were currently in play that were projects that we were working on. And so he would understand, you know, and have a good solid, you know, uh, knowledge on the risk that he would be accepting. Definitely speaks to your ethics and integrity. So I applaud you there. You know, there's one lesson that I've learned over the years in this industry. Try not to piss people off. You know, it's too small of a community. We all talk to each other. We all share information. We all meet up at cons and, and events, etc you don't want to make enemies and it, as much as it sucked that i was eventually let go with the rest of the team once i spun up operandus you know what the very first thing that i did was sign up as a partner with them because i still believed in the technology the products the people behind it you, you just gotta put your big boy pants on and uh, put your best foot forward. So I applaud you there. Before I, I get into our last topic, just really quick, try to keep this one a, a little bit brief in response. Do you think, you know, especially with the short tenure that these CISOs tend to have with organizations that there's something that should be in their mindset or something that they need to prepare, a way to keep themselves, I guess, market ready at the drop of a hat, whether if it be through some merger and acquisition activity or bad cultural fit, not having the right business acumen, whatever the case may be, you know, we've talked about all these scenarios, but is there something that they should do just to keep themselves market ready? I mean, besides their resume? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, what they could probably do is they need to stay involved in the community. They need to be uh, working with professional groups. They need to have mentors. They need to have their network. That keeps them involved. That keeps them relevant. That keeps them, they know what what technologies, what things are changing, what things they need to update themselves on so that if something like this happens and they're out looking for a job, they're not playing catch up. Yeah, I could not agree more. That was a brilliant response. Absolutely love it. So let's get into our last topic before we open it up for the audience to ask any questions that they may have. And audience, please start preparing yourselves, get those questions ready. I want Gary to be able to have some great dialogue with y'all. But you just appeared in one of the, I believe it's HBO Vice News uh, articles about cities under attack. And you, know, you haven't been a CISO for a major metropolitan city like San Diego. My haven't been involved with the CERT team or cybersecurity incident response team for the city of Atlanta ransomware outbreak. I think we can have a pretty engaging and dynamic dialogue, but let's talk briefly about what are cities and I'm going to keep this confined to the United States of America because, you know, well, it's what I care about. What do these cities need to do to stop the shit from happening? It is getting ridiculous, folks. 
I cannot tell you how frustrating it is when I see one major metropolitan city after another falling into these scenarios of ransomware infestations that are shutting down the entire services for their constituents and sometimes even leading to you know things like dash cam recordings and body cam recordings that are still subject matter to legal proceedings for criminals and now we're having a question everything because we can't even retrieve video footage we have organizations like the tweaksbury massachusetts police department that ends up paying the ransom to be able to get their systems back online now what kind of message folks are we sending when law enforcement compensates criminals for their activities this stuff has got to stop now what do you think gary is uh, the the common element here between all these municipalities that are getting hit why does this seem to be such an issue for them or is it happening at an average scale for their sector but because it is a, a government agency maybe the media is picking up on it more so what do you think the case is actually i mean i think you have to understand cities i mean cities are i kind of like to call them you know digital pack rats you know they keep technology forever and they don't really have because and in many ways cities are also businesses like the city of san diego's about a four and a half billion dollar business okay mm -hmm. but one of the things that they lack though is they don't have competition it isn't like the city of la is going to come down and steal the citizens of san diego if san diego doesn't offer specific services or, or whatever so instead you know they're operating as a business but without you know um I guess you could monopoly. say specific controls. Yeah, they're based on a lot like a monopoly. You know, without having those kind of controls that make you innovate and make you get better, you just use whatever tools you can to be able to make money and to be able to provide services. And so you operate as a business without a lot of these security controls in place. And unfortunately, you know, and this is these are discussions I, I've had with a lot of municipal CISOs that I mentor and stuff. They operate using technology because they want to be able to put out these services and take care of their citizens, but they don't think of the diligence piece, the governance piece that they have that goes with that technology, i.e. you have to know the risk, you have to put the controls in place, you have to manage that technology. Businesses know that because they use that technology to be competitive. They use that technology to go ahead and compete with each other and they change technology out and put in new technology and some businesses do it better than others. Cities lag, you know, and they tend to lag five years or more behind, you know, businesses with that type of governance and that type of mindset. It's, you know, and unfortunately it's, it's brutal and the, the attacks and stuff you're seeing today, it isn't like it's an upscale, like it's happening more often. Actually, it's been happening like this for quite a long time. What's happened is the types of attacks have changed. 
because we've gone from having viruses to now having destructive ransomware. So mm-hmm. these are things that cities can't just clean up and not tell anybody. These are things where cities are stuck. Now they require specialized skill sets. Now they require third-party vendors to come in and help them fix stuff. And these things, because of everything being connected today, getting the news gets out there. It is what it is. I'm really hoping because now that we're seeing all this stuff, it's going to start driving a lot of cities and a lot of municipal and you know state organizations to start being responsible more with the technology that they're buying. Every piece of technology you buy has risk. You know what, what I find a lot of times is they buy it, they use it, and they leave everything in default. They don't really think about the fact that, you know, no, you have to have a game plan here. You have to have a CISO. You got to have a security team. Somebody's got to be looking at how this stuff's going to be governed and managed and updated. Otherwise, you're just, you know, you are the next, you know, you're the next city that's been hacked that's going to be in the next news cycle. It is escalating, and I think it's escalating just because of the fact that more and more of them are are getting hit by ransomware and that's very hard to hide because very few cities have the skill sets to be able to clean that up you have to ask for help you have some cities that do a very good job of it you know uh, that very that do a very good job of managing their tech i find those cities like the city of san diego they have had successive CISOs who've built out really good strategies because they're doing a lot of smart city projects they're doing a lot of high technical Type stuff and so you have to put you know the the, the extra work in to be able yep. to manage those technologies so you the know? only thing that i would say as a recommendation across the board for any municipality out there to stop the you're not even going to stop the ransomware but you will be able to recover is please explore server and endpoint dlp technologies because you're going to have your infrastructure breaches if they do lead to some type of ransomware infection that does spread across your network. Don't be a, another Baltimore, Atlanta, etc. You know, have a mechanism for recovery. Your constituents are depending on it. Your fire, police, 911, water services, garbage, you name it, they're all needing you to protect those systems. So please explore that. Oh, yeah. I want to go ahead and open it up to our Q&A session. And I'll kick it off, folks. So get yourselves ready. Be ready to unmute and ask your questions or make comments or give kudos to Gary for joining us today. So all this that we just talked about with municipalities, should there exist some type of federal legislation that maybe has, uh, um, uh, I guess, penalties for non-compliance with cybersecurity baseline standards, maybe withholding federal funding or particular programs, or maybe the flip side, giving incentives to these municipalities and local state governments what do you think i think i would rather go with the incentives vice you know hammering them and the reason is is that many of them are already stretched as it is you know dhs has a ton of different grants and stuff that if you uh 
are doing cybersecurity projects you can submit for, you know, and, and compete for. I mean, I think, you know, if you can do some type of incentives just to be able to do basic hygiene, you know, you need some extra funding to be able to maybe hire an MSP to handle some stuff for you. At least you've got somebody managing it for you. Yeah, uh, transference. Um, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, it just, you know, so I would much rather go with some type of uh, an incentive because the issue you run into is if you start trying to legislate things, you know, then how are you going to enforce it? And typically, you know, municipal, you know, organizations, they're not going to follow anything unless you're controlling some type of dollar, you know, some type of, you know, funding. You know, I mean, you know, like the state of California can go ahead and dictate you're supposed to do stuff, but unless you're going to go ahead and control some type of funding or push down some type of fines, typically people are going to go ahead and read what they say, but they're not really going to do it. You know, I mean, you know, I would much rather make it an incentive than try to make it a fine. You know, I think you would actually get more done. You know, I think you would get more buy-in, you know, from people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so with that, uh, we still have several folks here in the room, and we are coming up on the top of the hour. But I do want to open it up, let you guys ask your questions, provide comments, or give Gary some kudos here. So feel free, go ahead, unmute yourself at this time if you'd like to participate. So Gary, it's Carol. I have a question. What is the most common career path for becoming a CISO? Um, you know, typically what you'll see is, um, what I've seen, you know, a lot is you have people who are on the network side, who are on IT, you know, they're working in the IT field and they're really interested in security and so they'll jump over and join a security team as an analyst you know they'll get into the more experience they get they become an engineer or an architect and then they you know they you know apply for a CISO role usually they'll have already been working as uh, leading a team so they've got some management experience leading a team I've also seen people come from the audit side of the house where you know they they may have worked in network and they maybe they were a security analyst and then they went doing you know audit and risk managing you know and working on that side of the house doing data privacy doing audit and risk and then uh, and they were running again they were running you know some type of a team managing some type of group of people and uh, and then they apply for a, a this position there's nothing that says specifically that you have to come from security Typically what they're going to look for is that you were leading some type of team, you know, a group, and you were managing enterprise risk, you know, whether it was in a security setting or a risk and governance setting. And um, and then they're going to take a look at, you know, what kind of experience you have, how long you've been doing it, um, any kind of professional search, that kind of stuff. Thank you. Uh, no problem. Okay, any other questions from the audience members? Or comments, kudos? Okay, with that, Gary, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be able to join us and, and be a part of this podcast series. Uh, we're young, we're growing, and having wonderful guest co-hosts like yourself is only going to help amplify our reach around the world. Uh, so, just a couple show notes before we close out. Next week is also going to be a daytime episode as our guest co-host, who I'm going to announce 
tomorrow will be joining us from Estonia. So we're going to continue with this daytime exploration just to be able to accommodate the time zone difference and uh, not make our co-host join us at three o'clock in the morning or something ridiculous like that. So 1 p.m. again next week. After that, uh, we're going to be taking the July 4th week off holiday for us. Other show notes. So in the past week or two, we've been fully populated on all the major podcasting platforms. Finally got Apple to play nicely with us. We had to make a couple changes, but we are in Apple. We are in Google. We are in uh, Podbean. We're on Spotify. You name it, uh, all the major podcasting platforms. So look for us there. Be sure to subscribe and be able to get notifications when new episodes are published. Now, last big piece of news. Uh, when we return from our July 4th break, we are going to have just some fabulous back-to-back guests. July 10th, joining us will be Ann Johnson, the Corporate Vice President of Cybersecurity for Microsoft Corporation itself. Ann and I are going to be talking not only about the advancements that Microsoft has made over the past several years in the cybersecurity space, but we're also going to be talking about her particular experiences in cybersecurity, her coming up in this industry, and in particular, the challenges of raising a daughter and some of the sacrifices and challenges that she's had to deal with. With myself being raised by a single mom, I can definitely relate from the other side of the scenario, but I want to talk with her about that. I I really want to get that kind of heart to heart and be able to see what it really is like for some of the single women out there that are coming into this industry, or maybe it's single dads you know, that are going through some of the exact same challenges of, you know, making sacrifices, having to travel and all the challenges that encompasses when you're raising a child. Um, I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to. After Ann Johnson, the very next week, we got Troy Hunt of HaveIBeenPwned.com fame coming on. So just some really great guest co-host and i am so excited that they've bought into what we're doing how we're doing it and giving the infosec community their voice that can be heard you know like i said around the world so troy's going to be joining us all the way from sydney australia so like i said folks we are talking around the world uh i believe that's going to end up being like thursday 10 a.m his time when we're doing this at uh 7 p.m on a wednesday so it's kind of like he's joining us from the future right so that's what we got coming up for you guys i appreciate your time today You will see us again next week. Thank you for joining this Duncan Macklin InfoSec War. Our guest, Gary Hayslip. You can find him on Twitter. G Hayslip is his handle. And with that, 
It's a wrap. See you next week. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cyber Speaks Live. Remember to visit our blog at cyberspeaks.com to sign up for our newsletter of upcoming episodes and special guest co-hosts. If you'd like to be a guest co-host or sponsor the show, please email us at speakup at cyberspeaks.com. That's all for this week. And as always, stay safe and secure out there.